Um, can we just give a round of applause to everyone who's taken part so far? It was really class. Um, loved it. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but I think a shared memory uh, we all have of Christmas is, is that common experience of not being able to sleep on Christmas Eve. Okay. Um, and part of that's the anticipation for Christmas morning. Um, you just don't know what you're going to get up to find um, under the tree. Uh, we all have toys or presents that stick in our memory for one reason or other. Uh, sometimes it's a welcome surprise. Um, sometimes it's just a relief that the thing we most wanted was there. Sometimes, if we're being honest, it's crushing disappointment. Um, I don't know about you, what was the most... It would be an interesting uh, kind of survey to see what the most disappointing gift we all ever received was. I'll be totally honest, and I hope my parents aren't watching in the live stream. But for me, it was a fold-away piano stand for an electric piano. Right? I was 18. That's what I got. A fold-away piano stand for an electric piano, which was something I really needed. Uh, and I still use it. But come on, a piano stand. Like, can you imagine, like, a kid coming up to the front of church? Like, oh, someone's got a drone and an iPad. I've got a piano stand. Ridiculous. Um, but what I'm getting at, okay, is when it comes to the gift that was given at Christmas, which is what we're thinking about, it's what we're working towards in this Advent season, the question is, what sort of gift are we going to find under the tree? When we get to the stable and find a baby and that familiar scene, What's actually there waiting for us? What sort of emotions does this gift stir? Are we coming downstairs to find something practical that meets a need? Do we find relief, surprise, disappointment, like a piano stand? Something that does a necessary job but doesn't get your, hunt, your heart pumping? Like in, like in Christmas 1995, when me and my brothers got our PS1, best Christmas present ever, right? When it comes to this gift, do we know what it is? Do we know what it's for? And that's simply all I want to think about this morning. The nature and quality of the gift that was given by God to us at Christmas. And I want to share two things about this gift Two things from God's perspective as the gift giver and two things about the gift that stand out to me as being significant for us as the gift receivers. So first two things I see from God's perspective as the gift giver. The first thing I see um, is extravagant generosity. Extravagant generosity. John and Caleb's reading there tells us that the true light was coming into the world. The true light. And let's not be shy about what John's saying here. Eugene Peterson translates that verse. This life light was the real thing. It's the real deal. John claims here in these sentences that with the birth of Jesus, God himself, the creator and sustainer of everything, was coming to dwell with humans as a human on earth. I don't know about you, but I struggle to get my head around the sheer extravagance of that kind of gift because God held nothing back. God held nothing back. 
But the thing is, I don't get a sense of reluctance here as, as if God was um, grimacing, you know, as he sent this gift. You know, this was something he had to do. I don't get that sense at all. Instead, I sense joy in this passage and I sense joy in the Christmas story because God delights to give himself to this world. God delights to give himself to us. And you see, Jesus doesn't come to us from heaven as some kind of, of alien, right? As if, as if God's out of touch and, and, he, and he sent his son to the earth in some kind of experiment to learn what the human experience is like. That's not what's going on at all. This is a homecoming. This is the son of man coming home to his familiar creation. Jesus comes to that which is his own. And that's why the angels sing. That's why there was a thrill of hope and rejoicing. Because here we get a glimpse into the heart of God. And we see extravagant generosity and an abiding, unshakable love for all that God has made. God loves and he gives freely and abundantly. It's simply his nature. It's who he is. So we see... Um, extravagant generosity. The second thing we see from God's perspective is scandalous vulnerability. Um, I love the way um, John, speaking last week, described the story of the shepherds. Um, he said, I think I'm quoting this right here, it was like an angel appearing to a couple of bouncers at a dodgy UDA bar in Rathcool, telling them that the Son of God had just been born in a garage in Doke. That's a classic John Dickinson line right there. And I love it when Doke is name-dropped in anything. Uh, it's just a comical place. Um, I, one time... Uh, I talked to some guys I was working with about the possibility of making like a contemporary nativity video with young people that kind of captured that sense of what would it be like if it was in the real world and, and I was saying those sort of things. And then someone with a look of kind of like fear on their face said, uh, does that not sound kind of a little bit blasphemous to do that? And you see, uh, that accusation, right, shows us just how much we have sanitized and sweetened and sacralized the story of the birth of Jesus. We think of a, of a silent night, a quiet baby, shepherds who definitely weren't drunk or swearing, of clean sanitary straw that definitely wasn't soaked with blood, of a baby that didn't wail or that couldn't get ill or be in any way contaminated or threatened by the dangerous world around it. We think of halos and impermeability. That's the nativity, except it isn't. You see, Mary and Joseph were invisible people in an insignificant dirt poor region of their world. They were right at the bottom of the social ladder with all of the threat and danger that goes with that. And the only reason we can think differently is because the life that Jesus, this baby, went on to live demanded we remember his people and their stories. The big word, big theological word we use to talk about the birth of Jesus is incarnation. Incarnate, that part of the word, it means meat, okay? Chili con carne is chili with meat, right? So incarnation is the act of God putting on flesh, okay? 
the message translation of the Bible famously paraphrases verse 14 like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I think that's really interesting. Because John could have said that Jesus became a man or Jesus became a human being. But instead, he chose to say that God became flesh, which in the Greek was, was, was actually pretty vulgar because flesh sums up all of our human frailty and weaknesses as well as our strength. And in the Bible, it's usually used negatively. We talk about a war against the flesh. But when God put on flesh, he chose to take on all our human vulnerability and limitation. Um, I know a lot of you will be familiar with Scott Erickson. Scott, the painter, maybe you have his honest Advent book. If you haven't seen it, get it. Or follow him, follow him on Instagram. But I, I, I love the style of his work. Um, he does paintings in the style of religious icons, but with images that represent um, the frailty of Jesus, like Jesus having his nappy changed or being fed, which feels uncomfortable, okay, to look at, even to talk about that. But that's because vulnerability, limitation is uncomfortable. And when we apply that to God, it becomes um, even more uncomfortable. But that's the uneasy mystery of incarnation. That God, without giving up or abandoning one ounce of his holiness or majesty or power, made himself human with everything that goes with that. Um, Gregory of Nazianus is a name you're going to remember, right? Um, he's from, he's from Ardoin. And, um, uh, he's from somewhere a long time ago. Gregory of Nazianus said of Jesus... For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. I'll read that again because it's a bit of a tongue twister. For that which he has not assumed, Jesus, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. What he's saying is this. But God in Jesus took on to himself every part of what it means to be human. Because God wanted to save us in our entirety, from head to toe, inside and out. Nothing was off the table. God took it all into himself so he could rescue us completely and absolutely. So that's two things about this gift that we're finding under the tree. Um, from God's perspective, this extravagant generosity, this scandalous vulnerability. But second... I want to talk about two things, about the quality of this gift that I think of significance for us. Um, the first thing I see here is radical inclusivity. Radical inclusivity. Um, one of the absolute worst feelings in the world is that of being rejected. Um, I'm sure we could all tell stories of moments when we just felt left out. Um, I, it's, it's weird how they just like like kind of lock into your brain. I think back to when I was like seven or eight at primary school. I was maybe even younger. I think I was P1, 2 or 3. And I, I was trying to play football with the boys and I, I, I couldn't even kick a ball because I hadn't been shown. And I kept on turfing the ball over like the fence again and again and again. And then uh, the principal finally said, you're not allowed to play football anymore, right? And that like deeply impacted me. And I never played football again. 
right? Because of that moment of rejection, I became the weird kid just sitting in the step or making potions in the wall out of bits of plant. Um, And it's funny because it's such a small thing, but it weirdly still hurts to think and talk about fat. Um, The thing is, my day-to-day work, and I know this is true for a lot of you in your profession, uh, you'll work with young people or adults and families who have suffered the worst forms of rejection, um, of being rejected by the people who, who were supposed to love and care for them. Or maybe that's your own experience. Um, you felt rejected or you lost someone um, who was important to you. Um, I read this uh, in an article about the effect of rejection. It says this, whether intentional or not, the effects of rejection in childhood may include fear of intimacy, distrust, anxiety, and depression, and people-pleasing behaviors. Feelings of confusion and emotional pain from re- rejection may lead to attachment challenges, ineffective coping mechanisms, or an overall sense of loneliness. Long-term rejection or rejection that results in extreme feelings may contribute to trauma and kind of serious psychological consequences. Rejection is a powerful and damaging thing. It's a big deal. Um, So for the kids I work with, the feelings caused by rejection plays out directly in their behavior. Okay, We always say behind every behavior is something. Um, On top of that, the cause of that, loss or rejection, they lack positive role models and sources of support others take for granted. So not surprisingly, they struggle at school, so they get even more rejection there. Then they stumble in the church someday, and and what? What kind of uh, welcome the broken and volatile and vulnerable and rejected people when they stumble across Christian community? That's my question. Uh, because I hope it's not the same welcome Jesus got when he came into the world. Because what John says in this passage is totally stunning. Jesus made the world. It was his own. He came into that world that he made. And what? His own world, his own people didn't recognize him. They rejected him all the way to excluding and murdering him. If you have experience of rejection, especially by people or communities, or in settings where you know deep down you should have been welcomed and loved and supported. Jesus went through the same experience. But this was more, much more than God sharing in our experience so we could understand this better, as significant and powerful as that is. This was part of the process of God opening up his life so that we could all be included in it. And and I love how Jesus and the Gospels paints his kingdom um, in different ways. Uh, and one time Jesus describes the kingdom of God um, as a giant tree with spreading branches that gives shelter to any creature that needs it. It's indiscriminate grace. It's radical inclusion. Um, Scott Erickson, again, we have a print of his in our living room. Um, so an open hand uh, with seed in it and birds feeding. It's called Everyone Has a Place at the Table. Everyone has a place at the table. Um, Another time, while trying to describe his kingdom, Jesus tells a story of a wedding feast. I'm just going to read it. This is powerful. Um, Jesus spoke to the people in parables, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent a servant to those he had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those he had been invited, but I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But he paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Um, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Again, radical inclusion at the table of God. Everyone is welcome. You see, this community Jesus was going to build, it was set up to be inclusive of every type of human. If you aren't challenged by the diversity of people in church, right, you're either not talking to enough people, okay, or there are people missing from our church. For this gift is for everyone. It's radically inclusive. And finally, this gift comes with genuine choice. Genuine choice. Um, you see, there are things in life we can't control, right? It's a matter of life. There are so many things we have no say in the matter. We can't choose the circumstances we're born into. Uh, we can't choose whether or not someone we love gets sick, whether someone we trust lets us down. The people Jesus spent most time with, but he brought into his inner circle were some of the most marginalized in his world. Social outcasts, people who were sick, people with mental illnesses, criminals, addicts, widows, the poor, the abused. And these people tend not to have a lot of agency. A lot of their lives are out of their control. Regardless of how hardworking or intelligent or creative they might have been. And I often say when I'm talking about sin, that we're all sinners. Okay, the Bible clearly teaches that. But we're also all victims of sin. And people who are most closed out by sinful structures, they don't have a lot of genuinely free choices to make their lives different. And the illusion of choice, okay, that if you change your routine, if you hustle, right, if you work hard, then you'll be guaranteed to break out and be the master of your own destiny to rise to the top of the pack. It's one of the big lies of our age. Uh, billionaire Kim Kardashian um, was asked, what advice would you give to women? And she said, work harder, work harder. And I'll tell that to some of the single mums I work with who are rearing five kids while holding down jobs at pay pennies. Work harder, great advice. <laughs> but in this case, with the giving of this gift, the poor really do get a choice that can change things. Jesus, when he grew up, said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And remember, 
from what we've already said. Jesus says this as part of the community of the poor, not as one of the privileged. But even long before Jesus uttered those words, while he was still in his mother's womb, she sang this song about her yet unborn child. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. With the sending of his son, God really does give the powerless power to make a choice that can change things. And that's because to God, your worth and dignity are never in question. They can't be affected um, by the labels put on you. Your status, okay, isn't determined by the world you live in, your circumstances, or by what people say. It comes from God. Um, John 1, 12 to 13 are among my very favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And here's what I'm saying to us this morning. I don't know your circumstances. Um, I don't know what your 2022 has been like or what your life's been like. Um, I don't know what you have to carry, the things that were done to you, the opportunities uh, that you didn't have in life or that you felt were taken unfairly away from you. But what I do know is that if you can understand anything of what I'm saying this morning, then you have a God-given, not a man-given, not a self-given, but a God-given capacity and right to accept Jesus and become a child of God. Um, that word, believe, it's one of those Christian words that's it's kind of difficult, right? Um, but I want to say it's not about trying to conjure up some sense of mental state of like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to accept the impossible here. Believe has more to do with trusting, with allegiance. Um, so many people I come across are... Um, I suppose, interested in, 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 in the idea of becoming a Christian, interested in the, in, the, in the difference it could make to their life, but they think they wouldn't be able to keep it, but they just couldn't be a Christian for the long run. But you see, becoming a child of God through trust in Jesus is a sheer miracle. Just as the, as the gift of Jesus given from God to heaven, God becoming man was sheer miracle. So the instance of every human um, becoming a child of God um, is sheer miracle. It's a status that is given to us. Okay, It's not a job, right, that we can get fired from. It doesn't mean we don't screw up or that we're immune from pain and heartbreak. Just think of a prodigal son, okay? However estranged or cut off from the family he might have felt in his wanderings, at no point was he not a child of the Father. At no point was he not a child of the Father. If you say yes to God, if you, if you, if you see this gift, right, and you're like, I want to accept this gift. If you receive um, that gift by saying, I trust that Jesus' name is strong and powerful enough to save me and let me become God's child. God will honor that. Um, 
the, the, the action, the big event is from his side, not ours. Ours is a simple yes. Um, and in that moment, whether things feel different or not, you're included. Um, you're welcomed into his family and nothing can change that status ever, ever. And if you say to us, just say, for example, if that's someone this morning is like, I kind of want to do this, um, tell us because we're your family and we, we will make a commitment to you as a new extended member of this family um, to help you step into this new life God is giving you. That's what we exist for, right? This church exists because people find the gift of Jesus, were brought in and included into his family, took their place at the table, and now work together to help share that invitation with the whole world.